James chapter 5, starting in verse 12. But above all brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, a sinner, from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your love for us. We're so grateful to gather in the church every single Sunday with one another and to remind ourselves through the scriptures, through the singing, through our prayers, through our words to one another of the amazing, unfathomable love of God for us. Lord, we are so thankful for Christ, especially this time of the year as we reflect on and consider Advent and the coming of our Savior. Thank you for giving us Jesus. Lord, as we've read this final passage in the book of James, we give you praise for this book, this book of wisdom that has taught us so much about the Christian life and so much about what it looks like to follow you faithfully. Lord, we pray now as we finish this book that you would once again instruct us and teach us and give us understanding, especially in this challenging passage that we've read today. Lord, we pray that we'd be edified and encouraged and built up We pray, Lord, that we would more fully obey your word and follow you. And so, Lord, please teach us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So, this is our final sermon in this series that we've been doing through the book of James. Starting next week, we'll begin our full-fledged Christmas services, and we'll have several weeks of those culminating in a Christmas Eve service on the 24th. But next week, we're going to be focusing on Christ as the Savior of the whole world, and we'll be doing that by kicking off the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which is a offering for international missions that Southern Baptist churches take at this time of the year, every year. And next week, we're going to be inviting um, Vern and Jennifer Uh, who were international missionaries through the IMB for about 25 years before Vern took the job as the director of missions here on the Gold Coast. And so they're going to come and share about the International Missions Board, where our offering goes, and what God is doing globally uh, through the church in reaching the nation. So I'm really excited about next Sunday. It's going to be a great week. Well, that is then 
and this is now. So what do we have before us in these final verses in the book of James? Verse 12 again says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, commentators and biblical scholars are divided on whether verse 12 belongs to the previous section, the section on suffering that started back in verse 7, or whether it's its own standalone thought, an instruction on having integrity in our speech. And so what that means is that each preacher has to decide how to approach this passage. Again, whether to couple it together with last week's teaching or take it as a standalone idea. Because Ryan preached last week, he got to make the decision for me, and I get to live with it. So here we are. I'm not saying that I disagree with him. All I can say is that I would have preached it last week. So, we'll take this final section as three closing instructions for the churches that James is writing to. Instruction number one, based out of verse 12, is this. Be people of integrity. Be people of integrity. He says, above all, no swearing. Now, by swearing, he doesn't mean what we often mean in English when we say don't swear. We're talking about don't use four-letter words. What he's talking about, although that's good advice too, but what he's talking about is do not take oaths. So an example of that would be I swear to God or I swear on my mother's grave or some other way of taking an oath, swearing on something or someone. Instead, James says that our speech should be so faithful that a simple yes or no is all that is required. Once again, James is ripping off his brother here. But when your brother is Jesus, that's a great thing to do. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught a very similar thing, Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, as followers of Jesus, yes or no is all we should need. Why do people swear on something else? Well, when you think about it, if you add God's name to something, I swear to God, it sort of beefs up your credibility. Now, unfortunately, when I was a kid, me and my, my friends, we used to swear on things all of the time. And the reason for that is because we really wanted to convince our friend of something and obviously we didn't have a very good track record. We needed to add a little bit of weight to the promise that we were making about something. But the reality is, if you're a person of integrity, a person who says what they mean and means what they say, people will trust you. So the application in verse 12 is clear. Are you a person whose word can be trusted? When you give someone your word, is it reliable? Can they take your yes or your no to the bank? Moving on to verse 13, we see instruction number two 
of three closing instructions. And this will definitely be the longer one. Instruction number two is be people of prayer. In verse 13, the teaching is pretty straightforward. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. In other words, he's saying we as followers of Jesus run to God in times of suffering and we rejoice in God in times of blessing. I love this because James reminds us that as followers of Jesus Christ, all of our lives and all of our circumstances are lived out in relation to God. When things are hard, we go to him. When things are great, we rejoice. That's why Thanksgiving is such a wonderful practice where we sit down and we reflect on the good things that God has given to us. We don't just sit here and eat our food and enjoy all the rich blessings that we have in this country and ignore God. We relate to God in every circumstance in life. He is utmost in our thoughts. As St. Paul taught us, we are to pray without ceasing. Now, verse 14 begins the most challenging passage to interpret in the book of James and one of the most challenging passages in all of the New Testament. And that's why I'm here this morning to offer you the definitive interpretation. Just kidding. We should approach passages like this with both humility, since there is no clear consensus on it, and also with attentiveness, because we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and all of it is given to us for our benefit. That prayer is the main point of the passage is indisputable. James references prayer in every single verse, 13 through 18. And specifically, what James is trying to do in this text is he's, he's trying to in, encourage Christians to have boldness in their prayers, to have faith in their prayers, believing that God truly can and will respond to the things that we ask, believing that our prayers really can affect things. So that much is clear, but beyond that, there's a lot of debate. Verse 14 says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now we're going to work slowly through this passage. And we're going to do that because this is so important for us to understand. We live in a day and age of healing ministries and word of faith. And it's important for us to understand what James is and is not teaching here. So we're going to take our time. But the debates about this text begin right here in verse 14 with this question. Is James referring here to physical sickness or is he referring to spiritual sickness or spiritual weakness? The Greek word astheneo means to be sick, but it can also mean, and at times is translated, to be weak. The way that we would know whether its use should be translated sick or weak is determined by the context. Now, Jesus, who we know James relied on heavily in this letter, whenever Jesus used that word, astheneo, uh, he was referring to a physical illness every single time. We also look at the context here in this passage, and the fact that the sick person is to call for the elders of the church who are to pray over him or her, 
and that the Lord will raise him up strongly suggests a person who is sick and in their bed, either at home or in the hospital. We then should, as most commentators do, see this as a reference to physical sickness. So we've got the picture in our minds. We have here a Christian who is ill, a Christian who is laying on their sickbed, and they are needing a healing from God. And so James says if that's where this person finds themselves, they should pray. What we see, though, is that in this case, the sick person is given very specific instructions on how to pray. First, we see that the sick person is to call for the elders of the church to come and pray for them. Notice with me that the initiative here rests with the person who is sick. The sick person calls for the elders of the church to come and pray for them. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that as pastors or elders of the church, we can't suggest that we come and pray for you. But it does mean that at the end of the day, the ball is in your court. If you want prayer, you should reach out and say, I'm inviting the elders to come and to pray a prayer of faith for me. Now, this is an aside, but I want you to notice here another example in the New Testament where we see a plurality of elders. Notice that the, the instruction is not call for the elder, singular, of the church to come and pray. The instruction is that the sick person should call for the elders of the church. The New Testament teaches that in a healthy church that's properly ordered, there should not just be one pastor who becomes the end-all spiritual authority in that church, that there should be a team of pastors who are working in concert to lead and shepherd and teach the church. Also, I want you to notice that the New Testament pattern here is not for a special healing service that is going down Wednesday at 7 p.m. at the church, that is being led by somebody who has a particular gift of healing. The ordinary means of healing ordained by God is that those who are sick summon their own pastors to come and anoint them and pray over them. So the first thing we see is they call the elders to come pray for them. But second, in conjunction with praying, the elders are to anoint the sick person with oil. As you may know, in the ancient world, oil was used for medicinal purposes. All the essential oil advocates are like, amen, amen, it's true. For example, when the Good Samaritan came upon the man who was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road, we read in Luke 10.34 that he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So some commentators see this as a call for the elders of the church to use both physical and spiritual remedies in caring for those who are sick. In other words, to apply medicine and prayer in an effort for them to recover. And this is definitely possible. And we certainly ought to welcome the remedies and the treatments that modern medicine afford us. Those are a good gift that have come to us from a good God. As pastors, we don't walk into hospitals and tell all the nurses and the doctors to get out of the room because the real medical professionals have shown up. No, we embrace their work and we offer ours. One issue with this view, however, is that it seems unclear why applying medicine, in this case applying oil to the wounds of this person, would be left to the elders. 
It seems like any member in the church would be sufficient to be able to apply oil to the wounds of this person. Also, it seems likely that a family member or a doctor would have already done that if that's what was necessary. They would probably not just leave this person writhing in pain until pastors were called on to give them medical care. The more likely purpose for the oil is that it has symbolic meaning. Oil is used in the Old Testament to anoint people like priests and kings. And these are people who are set apart for special attention and use by the Lord. As a prophet would come and dump oil of anointing on a king, what was being said there is that this this oil symbolized the Holy Spirit's presence and activity in their life. And so in that way, the anointing of oil is a way for the elders to set apart this sick member of the church, to set them apart uh, for the special healing touch of the Holy Spirit. So again, we've got the picture in our minds. A believer is sick. This believer is bedridden. What are they to do? They're to call on the elders of the church to come, anoint them with oil, and to pray for them. Well, now comes the hardest verse, verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this verse is hard for two reasons. The first reason is because of the unqualified seeming guarantee of healing here. If James had written, and the prayer of faith may save the one who is sick, and the Lord might raise him up, we would all go, okay, that makes sense, but he doesn't. Second, the other difficulty is if we're talking about physical healing here, which I'm arguing that we are, why does he start talking about sins and forgiveness? Those are spiritual problems. So let's look at these two difficulties. Let's starting with the first. Why isn't every person we pray for healed? What do we make of this unqualified assurance of healing? Now this might seem overly simplistic, but I would say we shouldn't make more of it than the rest of Scripture allows us to. Let me say that again. We shouldn't make more of it than the rest of Scripture allows us to. What I mean by that is that Scripture always interprets Scripture. Our baseline assumption is that the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. So the Holy Spirit authored all of the Scriptures, and we should never pit one Scripture against another. The Scriptures do not contradict themselves. Lest you think that I'm just dodging this hard text, let me remind you that we do this all the time. For example, consider the words of Jesus in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, at face value, that doesn't seem like a very Christian thing to say. If you don't hate your family, you can't be a Christian. So why would Jesus say that? And Jesus says that to emphasize the level of preeminence that he ought to have in our lives. It was a forceful way, albeit a very forceful way, of speaking that draws out a certain response from us where we say, wow, is Jesus really number one in my life? 
Well, what's the, what's the best way to examine that? By seeing where Jesus stands in relation to the other most important people in your life, your spouse, your children. As it relates to our passage today, nowhere are we taught in the Bible to think of God as a genie in heaven or a vending machine in heaven, that if we just kind of rub the lamp the right way and we utter the right phrase or we walk up to the vending machine and we put our dollar in and we punch in the right code that out pops the blessing that we want. That's just not a biblical way of seeing God. God, according to the scriptures, is sovereign. And God does whatever he pleases. And we as believers understand that sometimes God's purposes might include allowing an illness to remain. Even the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 was dealing with some sort of physical malady. He called it a thorn in the flesh. And the Apostle Paul, a man of extraordinary faith, a man of extraordinary godliness, came before the Lord and we read that he pleaded with God three times, take this thing away from me, take this thing away from me, take this thing away from me. We would expect God to say, done. And instead God says, no. Because God had another purpose. And after that third time of praying, Paul becomes aware of that. And Paul says, okay, okay, I get it. Therefore, I'm going to boast in my weakness because I understand that your power is made perfect in my weakness. As believers, we understand that, again, at times, God has purposes in our suffering. First John balances out James's teaching to give us a fuller picture of the relationship between our prayers and God's will. Here's First John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything, here's the key, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. What does that mean? It means that our prayers are effectual so long as they align with God's will. So the question still remains, why did James write this then? Why would he put it like this? Well, I think the purpose is very similar to Jesus' purpose and a lot of his teaching on prayer, which was to call us to greater faith in praying. Remember the audience that James is writing to. In this letter, we have learned that James is writing to a bunch of unstable, double-minded Christians who are wobbling on whether or not they really trust God. In James chapter 1, listen to this passage we, we learned a couple of months ago. And notice that this is also about prayer. James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if you need wisdom, go to God and ask, and he's going to give it to you. No qualification up to this point. It's very similar to this. You need healing, have the elders pray, and you will be healed. But then he goes on to say this in verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is who James is writing to. And to people like that, 
who doubt whether God hears or answers their prayers, James is writing to encourage them to pray full of faith, to pray believing that God does hear them, believing that God can answer their prayers. Listen, believing that God actually often will answer their prayers. Now, I know even as I say that, some of you cringe. Often answer prayers about healing sick people? Maybe you're concerned that it sounds like I'm overpromising and you're worried that God's going to under-deliver. Well, maybe we need James's strategically crafted words more than we even realize. Perhaps we too are double-minded doubters. I wonder if in your own heart, you truly believe that God could use you as an instrument to bring healing to someone else, that you could actually pray for somebody who has cancer or who has diabetes or who has Alzheimer's or some other disease or sickness that God could actually use you to pray for them and bring healing in their life? Or do you think, no, that, I don't think that could happen. The way we answer that question indicates a lot about where we are at, where our faith is at. Unfortunately, we're too much like the man in the Gospels who cried out to Jesus very honestly, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so to us, honestly to me at times, feeble, weak, double-minded doubters, God through his servant James invites us to pray. And as we do to believe that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. I read about an extremely successful advertising campaign that was done by a regional airline here in the United States a few years back. And they did it in the run-up to Christmas where, maybe you saw this, but this airline set up a virtual Santa in the departure lounge of a domestic flight. And so passengers would come up and they would scan their boarding pass. And when they did, on a screen next to them, this Santa Claus would pop up and he would ask them what they wanted for Christmas. Unbeknownst to the passengers, employees from the airline went out to local malls and purchased and then wrapped all of the gifts that the people had requested. Things like socks, all the way up to expensive electronics. When the passengers arrived at their destination, their gifts were wrapped and waiting for them along with their luggage at the baggage belt. And many of these people stood in disbelief when they realized what happened. The video recording of everyone's reactions, of course, went viral, and the airline company scored major advertising points. But you can't help but wonder what the guy who was holding the pair of socks was thinking. <laughs> right? As he's standing there and he's seeing this dude walking out with this like 70-inch TV and this other person with a $2,000 camera and this person with a, Mac, a MacBook Pro or something, he's got his lousy socks. If only I had known, he must have thought. If only I had asked. And I think what's going on here in James chapter 5 is something similar. That James is trying to free us from the fear of asking, from being a bunch of doubters who don't approach God in faith, asking for the things that we need. The point in this passage is not the certainty of the outcome. 
The point is to encourage our faith in him so that we don't fail to ask and then not receive, like James 4.2 talks about. Now to the second difficulty in verse 15. James says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What's the connection here between sickness and sin? Although there's not always a connection between sickness and sin, there certainly can be. And we need to be aware of this. Sometimes God sends sickness into our lives as a way of buffeting and disciplining us in order to bring us to repentance. Pastor, do you have a verse for that? I do. I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians 11 Verses 27 through 30, the Apostle Paul here is teaching on the Lord's Supper on communion. And he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Then here's the key. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. Paul's making a direct connection here to their disobedience and their sin and sickness as a result, and in some cases, terminal illness. Or consider when Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. We read in John 5, 14, afterward Jesus finds this guy and he says, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This reference here in verse 15 seems to be this sort of a situation. The prayer of faith will raise up the sick person and notice, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Again, to be clear, this is not always the case. Not every sickness we have, we can turn and go, oh yeah, it's because of some sin in my life. That's just not the reality. You'll remember in John chapter 9 that Jesus healed a blind man. And the disciples, well, actually before the healing, the disciples come to Jesus and they go, okay, Jesus, so whose sin caused the blindness? Was it this guy or was it his parents? And Jesus says, neither, neither. You and I live in a broken, fallen world. Much of the sickness and the illnesses that we have in our lives are the result of that, that we live in a broken world. It's not related to our own specific sin. But every time we're battling an illness or a sickness, it would be a good and wise practice for us to take inventory of our own souls. We should examine ourselves and see if there is a particular sin that we've been harboring, that we're not willing to give up, that we're living in. And if there is, we must confess it and turn from that sin before pleading, God, or pleading with God for healing. Think of it this way. Why would we expect God to heal our physical ailment when we're content being spiritually sick? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, why would we come to God and say, I I want my soul to continue to be diseased and sick, but I really would like my body to get better. God is interested in healing the total person, the whole person, And he's infinitely more interested in healing our souls than our bodies because these bodies are withering away. And one day, for those whose souls have been healed, we get a brand new body at the resurrection. So why would we come to God and say, deliver me from this physical thing, 
but I'm going to hold on to this sin over here. Our practice needs to be, Lord, heal me completely. If there's sin that we're holding on to, sin that we've been unwilling to deal with, we need to confess and turn from that. Notice that in verse 16, the ministry of confession and healing moves outside of the scope of the elders to all of the members of the church. This is a big shift. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James considers confession a regular part of church life. Now, I know for a lot of us, that is not something we practiced often in our church background. But James sees this as being very regular in the life of the church. It's not something that should be reserved for people only when they're on their sick beds and only as they're calling for the elders of the church. And notice that he attaches to this practice the promise of healing. Healing through confession and prayer. Did you know that you can experience sickness from the stress of hiding your sin? It's true. We all know that stress is a silent killer. That when you live with a lot of stress, it has all sorts of negative health effects. Well, you can develop intense stress as you seek to cover your sin. David talks about this in Psalm 32. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against, the, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, in other words, when I wouldn't acknowledge my sin and confess it, he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David is describing very physiological and probably psychological uh, distress as a result of not coming clean with his sin, trying to hold on to it. I was listening to a sermon by Matt Chandler and he quoted an interview with a secular neuroscientist named David Eagleman. And this secular neuroscientist made this statement. He said, those living duplicitous lives live with the stress of keeping a whole section of their life secret from the people they see every day and care about. Now notice this, he says, the fact that their brains are marinated in stress hormones due to keeping the secrets over and above the effects of the wrong behaviors can cause an impairment in the person's ability to stay healthy and function well. As we sit and try to posture with our sin and cover it and hold it back rather than bringing it into the light and confessing it, we are only hurting ourselves. James is saying, confess your sins to one another. Come out of hiding and experience healing. Here's the problem. Too many of us would rather hold on to our sin, hide our sin, live in it secretly, and waste away on the inside. And this is exactly what the enemy wants. Because deliverance from sin and the spiritual, psychological, and physiological destruction it causes comes through confession. But Daniel, I confess my sins to God. That's great. We should confess our sins to God but we should also confess our sins to one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous Christian pastor who was executed by the Nazis in World War II, wrote this in his wonderful book, Life Together, a great book to read. He says, sin demands to have a man by himself. 
Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed or unconfessed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community, i.e. a church. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. Powerful words. Some of us have been living with patterns of sin in our lives for years that we can't seem to break. Perhaps the problem might be that we are not practicing confession. That we're keeping our sin in the dark, only talking to God about it, and then we can go right back to it. There's no formal accountability for us. There's no dealing with it in community with one or two other believers that you share with. Our sin must be drugged into the light. So confession should be a regular part of church life. We should confess our sins to one another, not to everybody, but to one another nonetheless. And we should also receive confessions from one another. And when we do, we should pray for one another. Now, you might be sitting here saying, hold up, I'm not qualified for that. I'm not a pastor. I'm not, I can't hear people confess their sins. I certainly can't pray for their healing. Well, that's why James assures us that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If you're a Christian here today, you're qualified because you are righteous positionally because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Your faith unites you to Jesus so that he is in you and you are in him and therefore you share in his righteousness. Although that's true, the focus of this verse is not so much on positional righteousness as it is on personal righteousness, living a righteous life. And those that are living righteously find that their, their prayers have greater potency. Psalm 66, 18 tells us this, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. There is a very real connection between a person's faithfulness and consistency and their pow the power of their prayers. Hence the calling of the elders back in verse 14. But lest we despair and think that we have to have perfect lives for our prayers to be powerful, James is going to give us an example to look at. It's the example of Elijah. Now at first glance, it seems like Elijah reinforces the narrative that regular churchgoers don't have the power to pray prayers like this. That we have to somehow be super spiritual to get God's ear. And the reason we would think that is because Elijah has a pretty supernatural track record, right? He had raised a boy from the dead. He famously called fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel and then decided to slaughter hundreds of priests of false gods. Uh, and then according to verses in 17 and 18, we see that he even started and stopped a drought through his prayers. So Elijah seems like somebody that we really can't relate with, but we actually can. And that's why James reminds us that he was a man with a nature like ours. Translation, he didn't wear a cape. He wasn't a superhero. He was a human just like us. And for all of the mountaintop experiences that this great prophet had, he also belt, or dealt with bouts of depression and fear and anxiety. And he even wanted God to kill him because he was so distressed and afraid. 
Now that's a guy that I can relate to. He had a nature just like ours. Elijah was far from perfect, but he was godly. And he did seek to follow the Lord with all of his heart. And he did pray prayers of faith, believing that God is powerful. And that's what we're supposed to get out of this passage. James wants us to pray our prayers full of faith. Faith not in ourselves, but in God's power to intervene. Instruction number three. So we're going to be people of integrity, people of prayer. And finally, in verses 19 and 20, we are to be people of restoration. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, just like hearing confessions, just like praying for healing, oftentimes we make the mistake of thinking that going after straying sheep is a job reserved only for pastors, that it's somehow their duty. But notice that's not what James is teaching. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone, not in the pastors, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner, and then he goes on. This is a job for all believers. That all of us have a responsibility to watch out for each other's spiritual well-being. And if we see somebody straying or wandering, to actually take it upon ourselves to pursue that person lovingly. Now, the word wander is important here because wandering isn't always intentional, right? If you wander in the woods, that's not always intentional. Wandering is very different from hiking in the woods. When you're hiking, you have a clear goal in mind, a clear destination. Wandering is just kind of aimlessly walking around, potentially getting lost. You wandered off the beaten path. The person pictured in verse 19 isn't necessarily trying to walk away from the faith. The, the person is pictured subtly drifting from the straight and narrow path. And unfortunately, this is how so many people end up falling away from the Lord. It's a subtle drift. It's, I'm going to skip church for a hobby. It's so beautiful out today. Got to get to the beach today. We have to do it. Let's just forget church and just go out and hit the beach or go fishing in the, at the lake or do some other thing. For others, it's working too hard to make that extra dollar to practice Sabbath rest. It's, no, no, no. We've got we've to serve the almighty dollar. We've got to make more, make more, make more. For others, they wander through shopping on Black Friday. No, I'm just kidding. But based on the videos I saw of people fighting in stores, it seems like shopping on Black Friday could cause you to wander a little bit. For others, it's watching shows that are questionable and thinking it has no impact on the way you think or feel or behave. For others, it's pursuing a relationship with that non-Christian or even a lukewarm believer. For others, it's listening to music with lyrics that stir up lust or greed or violence in your heart. The illustrations abound. Wandering is subtle. It's not always intentional. But wandering can be deadly. Wandering too long and too far can get you lost. And here James knows that spiritual wandering will lead to spiritual death if there's not intervention. So the stakes could not be higher. James ends his letter here by calling all Christians 
to do what he's been doing throughout this letter, to call people who are double-minded, people who are being unfaithful, back to faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Now, I'll admit, I'm probably like you. Most of us don't enjoy doing this. Most of us don't enjoy inserting ourselves into other people's business and saying, hey, bro, what's going on here? A lot of us don't like this. But that shouldn't stop us from doing it. Bonhoeffer, again, is helpful. He reminds us that nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Family, if we really believe the gospel, and if we really love one another, then we will overcome the discomfort, we'll overcome the fear of being misunderstood, and we'll seek to address the drift that we see in the lives of other people in the fellowship. Of course, we'll seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, like Galatians 6.1 says, Of course, we'll speak the truth in love like Ephesians 4.15 says, but what we won't do is sit back and just watch them fall away. James is an amazing book, and it ends here with a reminder of what's at stake in the Christian life. It's not just about living morally. It's not just about singing songs. It's not just about doing good. It's about life and death. It's about heaven and hell. Christianity at its core is about God rescuing sinners. And if you're a Christian here today, that means that you have experienced God's rescue in your own life, and it means that you are helping to share God's love with people around you so that they can be rescued too. But it's always about God. He's the one who does the rescuing. So as we conclude James today, We conclude by celebrating communion together because it is through what communion points us to that a multitude of sins can actually be covered. It's only through the blood of Christ that was shed on that cross 2,000 years ago that your sins and my sins can actually be covered and can actually be removed. Apart from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all of us would have to stand before our God and give an account for our sins, and pay the penalty that our sins deserve. But through faith in Christ, we can experience forgiveness of our sins, because Jesus nailed them to the cross when he died there on that tree 2,000 years ago. And so, the night before that happened, Jesus gave these elements to his disciples, and he gave the bread and reminded them that that was his body that was being broken for them. He gave them a cup of wine and he said, drink this. This is my blood that is being poured out for you, that is being shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And Jesus is calling on Christians throughout all ages to continually give themselves to communion so that we don't get it twisted, so that we always remember it's all about him. And so what we're going to do now is during this final song, We're going to invite those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone to be your Savior and your Lord, to get out of your seat when you're ready, to come forward, and to grab these communion elements and take them back to your seat. Just hold on to them. And once everyone has been served, we're going to pray together and we'll receive these elements as one body. If you've joined us this morning and you're not a Christian, I would ask that you refrain from uh, receiving these elements 
not because we don't like you or we don't love you or we don't value you or we want to exclude you, but because we want to encourage you to think about what these things actually mean. Apart from you putting your faith in Jesus Christ, this is nothing but an empty ritual and it'll have no effect for you. So our heart's desire is that you would sit as we receive communion and consider what this is all about and know that God's offer of forgiveness extends even to you as you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we hope that you'll do that here today. So let's receive communion together now during this next song. Let me pray first. God, we are so thankful for your love for us. We are so thankful that although we all have sinned, that we all like sheep have gone astray, that you are the great shepherd of our souls. Lord, we're so thankful that 2,000 years ago, you came, Jesus, to this earth, born of a virgin, in a manger in Bethlehem, as the savior of the world. And that through your life, And through your death and through your resurrection, we now can experience eternal life. And we now experience fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Jesus, we never, ever want to forget or lose sight of what you have done for us. So today, we'll receive communion once again as a way of anchoring our hearts to the truth of the gospel, that it is all about you, Jesus. So we love you. We thank you for your love for us. And we pray as we receive these elements in just a moment together, that our hearts would once again be filled with wonder and worship because of your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.